You're listening to Core Matters in Healthcare, where we cover the latest topics, developments, and trends that impact healthcare and healthcare providers. Offering unscripted, open discussion from medical experts sharing their insights, perspectives, and strategies to help you stay informed and empowered. Join us for candid conversations, expert advice, and practical solutions to elevate your practice and enhance patient care. Core Matters in Healthcare is brought to you by Core MedSource, your all-inclusive resource for educational and clinical needs. Hi, welcome to Core Matters in Healthcare. I'm Signe Munson from Core MedSource. Today's episode is a neat one. It's the first in a series that we're calling Lessons from Litigation, where our hosts and different guests are going to discuss areas of potential litigation and how to reduce your risk. Today's discussion, which is part one of this series, is the collaborative physician and advanced practice provider relationship. So let's join our hosts, Dr. Deborah Shelby and Dr. Paul Rose. Dr. Shelby is a board-certified PhD DNP-prepared dermatology nurse practitioner with a background of over 30 years in critical care, surgical, and plastic surgery nursing, and she's been providing legal consulting and expert witness services since 2002. And Dr. Rose, who was a board-certified dermatologist and hair restoration surgeon with over 30 years of medical experience, including emergency medicine. And while he doesn't practice law, after completing his law degree in 2005, he has been using that knowledge to provide legal consulting and expert witness services since then. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Paul. Hello. How are you? Hi, Signe. Hi. So I know you guys have some great insight on this topic. I know you've got a lot to say and a lot of advice. We're looking forward to hearing your insights on this. What It's really a pivotal relationship um, and what exploring the nuances, the protocols, and just looking forward to hearing your advice on effective strategies to maneuver this successfully. So I think this is a, uh, well, first of all, thank you for uh, welcoming, welcoming us to uh, this podcast. You know, I think this is a very interesting topic. Uh, over the last couple of decades, uh, the use of paraprofessionals uh, within medicine has increased tremendously for a multitude of reasons. But with that change in how medicine is provided come certain legal aspects that need to be considered. So I think this is an important topic to discuss today. And I think one of the areas, um, the first area that I think perhaps we should discuss is the use of physician assistants and nurse practitioners trying to understand how they're trained and how they're best utilized within a medical practice and what some of the legal uh, hazards are for a physician or medical practice utilizing such paraprofessionals. And I can't think of anyone better to speak about that than Dr. Deborah Shelby, who is a uh, doctorate and nurse practitioner. That's a really cool saying, Paul. Is that paraprovider something like a, like a cool paratrooper? Do we like do <laughs> cool things like that? Gonna, well, you certainly to... <laughs> parachuted into the podcast. <laughs> we, we parachuted onto medicine in a very cool way, I'm going to say. So, yes, advanced practice providers and physicians, really the healthcare team, so important. And we work together on a daily basis. And often, as I have been doing medical malpractice, 
I think to myself, what could we have done as consultants so that these things don't continue to happen? And I think that what we're going to talk about today are some simple things that clinics, physicians, advanced practice providers can do to really help reduce their risk. And not saying that it's going to prevent malpractice suits. Anybody can bring forward a medical malpractice malpractice suit against you. Nothing is going to prevent that. But reducing the risk and really doing well um, when you go through that discovery period is crucial in the outcome. So I was wondering, Deborah, if if perhaps uh, you can talk about the difference in training between a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner and the ramifications of that in terms of perhaps uh, state medical boards and how things can vary so much between one state, if we're talking about the United States, and another state. Uh, This is, uh, of course, different in other countries, and that's a whole other discussion. But perhaps you could elucidate on the difference so that people can understand what the realm of practice is, the scope of practice, and who governs the scope of practice for these people. Well, I'm going to start with the most easiest, and that would be the physicians and the physician assistants. And I, and I believe I'm going to use uh, the physician assistant slash associates. I'm not sure if that terminology has been passed or not, but they have a pretty standardized curriculum nationally, which makes it much easier for the patient to recognize training. They may not understand exact nuances of the training, but a PA in Florida is basically trained the same way under the medical model as the PA in California. Now, scope of practice might be different. So scope of practice for a physician assistant typically falls under the Board of Medicine. I know in New Mexico, we also include the Board of Pharmacy. Where it becomes a little bit cloudy is actually with nursing. Nursing has changed so dramatically, and some for the good and some for the not so good. And it can be very confusing, this doctorate of nursing practice, the way it first came on site was a little bit different than what it has morphed in today. So when we're talking about a doctorate of nursing practice, there's different concentrations that a nurse can pick. And also there are different types of entry level. So typically the master's nurse, the master's prepared nurse practitioner comes on the scene with uh, years of experience That was the typical entry point, and then they get their DMP. Now, as time has gone forward, now we have these bachelors of nursing programs that go into the DMP. And so they come right out of school and going into this advanced practice role. I'm not sure how I feel about the bachelors into DMP. I think it has some issues. Uh, Again, nursing typically will go from an associate's to bachelor's to to a doctorate. The physician assistant comes in with a bachelor's degree, and that bachelor's degree can be in any science. Uh, They can, it doesn't have to be, it could be 
bachelor's in chemistry, uh, biology, and then they go into a PA program. Uh, nursing, again, typically nursing is across the board, associates up to the doctorate. So as far as assessment skills, as far as training, I think that can vary from provider to provider in, the, in somebody that's coming out of a nursing program. And when I say things have changed for the not so good, I think these online programs that are out there are really pushing forward many nurse practitioners with no oversight of what their clinical experience is. And you know, Paul, that training, you were trained by experts in your field. I have been trained in experts in my field, world-renowned people. And so we were very fortunate. But there are many nurse practitioners who really sometimes just get a shadowing experience and they have to find their own clinical preceptors. So this is a little bit of a danger area in nursing as far as are we all created equal? No, we are not. That is the unfortunate truth. And so when in my clinical setting, I have all of my patients sign my bio. I want them to know what my clinical training is, what my degrees are in, what my clinical foci was, and my concentration. So I think, again, with scope of practice, answering that question, the state of Florida can be a little bit confusing. I have a license there. I actually have autonomous practice in Florida, but that's for primary care. It is not for specialty care. So again, it could be a little confusing when we say we have independent practice because it's not independent practice when you're dealing with a specialty. And I think physicians get a little confused because, heck, if nursing and nurses are confused about our own training, how is a physician going to know where we come from, what our degree of training is? And I think that podcasts like this is very important for the collaborating physician to listen to, to reach out, reach out for consultants like what we do, how we come into practices and we help them reduce their their liability. Uh, but it really takes me back when a physician really doesn't dive into what the actual training was of a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant before bringing them on board and then putting them into a satellite office and having a great uh, reduction of oversight. And when we're talking about those types of relationships, we could have general supervision or direct supervision. We can have that collaborating relationship. Uh, or you can have a physician who is there as a consultant uh, or part of the practice. And really in an independent state, there could be a physician within that practice, but there's no collaboration. There's no consulting. There's no liability on their part. So I think there needs to be a clarity. And, and again, here in New Mexico, it's completely independent. We do report to also the, uh, the board of pharmacy, uh, but nursing can either solely report to board of nursing or they can report to the board of medicine and nursing, or like I just pointed out, all three, pharmacy, medicine, and nursing. 
Well, I, th- I think your comments speak to um, some of the legal concerns that or hazards that uh, can occur when physicians are involved with physician assistants or nurse practitioners or even other personnel. And it gets to the question of delegation of services. So what can a physician a delegate? What procedures can a physician delegate? What examinations can a physician delegate? And there's a great deal of confusion about this from a legal standpoint. So it's imperative that a physician understand within his or her uh, medical board what the statutes are and what those statutes say in terms of what defines supervision what defines being on the premises, what defines being within phone contact. Uh, In some states, just being available by phone can be suitable. In other states, the physician has to be on the actual premises. And in some states, may not have to be there at all. Um, But there often is some sort of agreement between the paraprofessional and the physician. And that's also important for the patient to understand the role of the physician assistant, the role of the nurse practitioner within the medical practice, and how that affects the patient, even to the extent of how billing is done for the patient's services that are rendered. Uh, I think one of the points that I think is important is that physician assistants are trained differently than nurse practitioners are. And and the at least traditionally, uh, physician assistants, as I understand it, would do a two-year program, and their background might vary tremendously. And they often had very limited clinical exposure, and most would wind up in primary care. But as aesthetic medicine has uh, become so overwhelming within um, the medical practice area, many of them are trying to get into uh, aesthetic practice and leaving behind the very clinical um, primary care medicine that they were perhaps trained in. Some of them have trained in very uh, specific niches, whether it's cardiovascular or orthopedics. Uh, so their scope is very limited as to what they're able to do. Nurse practitioners, as you pointed out, historically had a great background in clinical care. And for them to come to the practice, the point of a practice, um, they brought with themselves a great deal of experience. But as you noted, that is changing in some aspects. Some people can go through uh, getting their BA and then going immediately on to their doctorate. And then I think that severely limits what their clinical experience is, and that severely uh, changes the uh, legal outlook when one is involved in a malpractice case. And maybe you uh, have seen some cases where the training of the physician assistant or nurse practitioner is questionable. I think one of the first things we do as expert witnesses in reviewing cases is trying to understand the training of all the practitioners uh, and non-practicing personnel within uh, that physician's practice. I agree. I When I speak with my students about their training And I'm also going to speak out to the physicians. I I implore you to please write down your training, write down, keep a formal log. The first thing, as you pointed out, is that as a expert witness, the first thing we're going to ask for is your education, your training. Then we're going to look for your certifications. If you're practicing dermatology 
and it's over five years or past your board eligibility and you have not received your, your certification, why? This looks really bad. And you, when you have to face, I'm the nicest person in the world, but you get me into my deposition and you have to face me on the plaintiff side. It's not pleasant. And most of my cases don't go past depositions because for this very reason, most cases will be made or broken in the, this discovery deposition period where the, where the attorneys are actually trying to figure out, do we have a strong case? Do we not have a strong case? And so education is probably a primary factor that will help really push a case forward or maybe settle quickly. And so here's an example, Paul. Dermoscopy. Everybody's on this bandwagon with dermoscopy. And I think it's great. Patients come in, they sit there and they say, where's your dermatoscope? And I, my answer is, I'm, I'm old school. I, I look, I have magnifying glasses, but my answer to that and to many people that are training is if I have to look at something that closely, I'm going to biopsy it because the most definitive answer to a diagnosis is going to be that pathology. Now, if you're one of these weekend warriors that you're going and uh, taking these dermoscopy courses, and then you're going and looking at these lesions and saying, oh, I looked at this lesion and it was okay. Well, again, this training is going to be crucial. Did you have a clinical log showing that you spent so much time with a dermoscopy expert really fine-tuning this basic skill that uh, that you need to be confident in using that tool. So be cautious with things that you're doing or learning on the weekend. I know back in the day, I mean, you and I will go back 24 years. So we've, we've been in, in medicine quite some time. I mean, again, back in the stone age where I still have the- a pet T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, right. His so, name is Rex. By, by the way, we we practice in the Stone Age, where we practice. We did written notes, and we didn't have all these new gadgets that are coming out. We use on our diagnostic skills, our good clinical judgment. It seems like medicine is just starting to turn into this algorithm of computerized AI assisting medicine. And, and really not relying on good clinical judgment. And so again, training can bite you in the, in the, uh, derriere. And so you have to really be cautious about learning new skills and you have the didactic part of training, and then you need to have that clinical part of training. And so Again, I always say you won't get sued for doing a biopsy. You will get sued for not doing a biopsy. So be cautious. These things are tools. And and to your point, I think that, you know, I often tell medical students and residents, it's more important to know what you don't know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's more important to know what you don't know than what you do know. You've got to understand where your training is lacking and not try to be overzealous in what you think your skills are. So I think dermoscopy is a very good example of that because one can imagine in a, in a lawsuit 
where a physician is using or nurse practitioner or PA is using a dermatoscope and judges that this lesion is benign, but then for some reason it turns out that perhaps perhaps the lesion was, for, let's say, a melanoma. Well, did you take a picture of it? Do you have documentation at the time that you looked at it that we can look at at this moment in the deposition or at trial uh, that shows the characteristics that would go along with a dermatoscopic examination that substantiates what you thought you saw because now you don't have a picture. Whereas most dermatologists are going to default ultimately to the biopsy because as you noted, the biopsy, you have a specimen in hand, you have a slide, you have a reading done hopefully by a board-certified dermatopathologist. You have something substantial there. So with dermoscopy, uh, there is especially to an untrained eye or not an adequately trained eye, there's a great deal of risk there ultimately, especially, let's say, a primary care uh, person doing that. Uh, They don't have the training behind them to back up necessarily what they think they've seen. And so I think the legal aspect of that is really quite important um, for physicians to understand. And that brings us to another point in my mind, which is when a physician allows uh, a paraprofessional to do certain things, in most states, the the physician themselves must be competent in that procedure themselves to be able to supervise the paraprofessional. And what we're seeing today is many physicians being um, attracted to adding things to their practice that they themselves don't know how to do, such as hair transplantation. And so they, they bring in, let's say, a robotic machine to do it, and they have a technician doing it or the PA or the nurse practitioner, but the physician doesn't themselves know how to actually do a hair transplant. If something goes wrong, there's going to be a problem. And that brings in another uh, factor, which is, did the physician notify the malpractice carrier that they were going to add this to their practice? Is there enough training material to show that the nurse practitioner, the PA, the technician had adequate training to do this? So there, it opens up a whole realm of legal uh, threat. I don't know what your thoughts are on on those kinds of events. No, I, I completely agree with you. And going back to that relationship between the physician and the advanced practice provider, so there's a lot of physicians who don't even know that they're supposed to send a, a letter. Like in the state of Florida, you're supposed to register yourself and that relationship with the board of medicine. And if you miss that step, that again, that is that time of discovery, that's going to be an issue with oversight. And then of course, review your protocols. And you said, well, what can a nurse practitioner and a PA do? Well, most scope of practice are basically written to be very general and vague. And their scope of practice or our scope of practice is anything that we're formally trained to do. And in a collaborating physician uh, role, you need to make sure that you are comfortable with the skills of that nurse practitioner and PA and review those protocols and have those conversations. 
you know, it's, it's one of those things that my, my dermatologist, you and I have been working together for so long. We talked all the time when we were in clinical practice together, we would, we would call each other. We would talk with each other. We were on the, we were on site with each other, but it was this daily thing that we would wake up and we would call each other and, and you would reach out to me. And if there was a difficult case when I was in my, especially in my first five years, you need that support. So when we do these dermatology training programs, I, as a program director at FAU for that DERM program, I always say this program is about giving you foundations. This program is not about you going out and opening up independent practice. You need five years to feel comfortable. And the, to me, dermatology, for example, I've been doing, like I said, doing this for 24 years. And, and so I know when I first started uh, feeling comfortable in practice was probably around that five-year mark. But dermatologists don't just sign, should be signing the paper. They should be going over protocols saying, how, you know, what, what can we do to increase your skills? What kind of classes do you need? Let's bring some lectures in. Be a continuum of education for these advanced practice providers. But not just for them. As a dermatologist, medicine is changing so quickly. There's many, even many dermatologists who don't stay on top of the newest medications, new drug therapies. They're still practicing in their old ways. And biologics, immunology has taken a forefront in medicine all across the board. And so I try to explain even to dermatologists when when you're not prescribing medications like biologics, like psoriatic biologics, psoriatic medications, and you're not offering those patients and staying on top of these medications so that the patient gets the best, most current treatment, and then you're giving them topicals for 15 years, and now all of a sudden the patient has psoriatic arthritis because you did not intervene with this patient early enough, that can set you up for a malpractice case. So when we talk about training and staying on top of your training, it's not just for advanced practice providers. It's also for physicians. So physicians really, again, listen clearly, just because you have that MD in a dermatology residency doesn't mean that you're staying on top of your game. You're supposed to be at the head of the healthcare team, stay at the head and make sure that your team members are there with you. And there's only one standard of care, right, Paul? One standard of care. You don't have two standards of care for an advanced practice provider and a physician. Patient outcomes are determined by the correct care, the correct treatment plan. And so that correct treatment plan needs to be things that are going to um, basically help the patient in what we'll use the autoimmune diseases, reduce and help try to prevent debilitating disease. So when I get a case on a patient that has who is suing for a disease that they would fail to get a treatment modality, and the physician themselves, as you brought up, are not capable or not keeping up 
with their skills, they are brought in to that malpractice situation because they need to be completely active in all patient care with that within that clinic. And so they may not have to see all the patients, but in some sort of way, you need to be checking with your team and making sure that they are comfortable with the patients and the acuity level that they're seeing. And if not, they need to intervene. Well, I, th- I think your comment about a standard of care are really crucial because you know, traditionally uh, in law, uh, people have wondered about local standards of care versus national standards of care. And in most instances, I would say that uh, we look to national standards of care. What's happening uh, around the country? What's happening at you know the majority of places where these techniques are being utilized as opposed to a local standard. And it also relates to informed consent because uh, if the physician isn't aware of what treatment modalities are actually available because the physician has not kept up with things, then there's a question about was the patient adequately informed? And, you know, to touch a patient, to deal with a patient uh, without adequate informed consent, and who who gives informed consent? In most states, uh, it's important uh, that the physician uh, themselves give the informed consent, because without that, you run the risk of assault and battery, and those can be criminal charges, especially when it's done by non non. Uh, professional people. I mean, I've been in situations where uh, I've reviewed a chart where the informed consent was given by a secretary. Uh, It's really sort of ludicrous to ask a secretary to provide informed consent to a patient, uh, in my opinion, and that's a personal opinion. But I I mean, it really puts you in in legal uh, jeopardy in some situations. And it's important since we're using paraprofessionals and technicians doing things that they're not necessarily uh, trained to do, uh, at least from a certification point of view, it's important that the patient understand that the person working on them may or may not have a medical degree in what they're doing. Uh, or the patient uh, needs to know that the, the person working on them uh, doesn't carry malpractice insurance. Does the has the physician indicated to the patient that by the way, uh, Sally here is going to be doing your hair restoration procedure. She's going to actually be incising into the back of your head with this um, drill, uh, and I'm going to leave the premises and go to lunch, and she's going to be working on you. you know, patients need to know what they're they have a right to know what they're getting into. And I dare say that there have been situations where physicians haven't even been on the premises when a surgical procedure is being undertaken. And this has occurred a, a lot of times with uh, hair restoration procedures. So uh, there are real dangers here. Yeah, I, you know, absolutely. This is a pet peeve. I, well, I have many pet peeves, I, I'm going to admit. But this is a big one. If you just want to write a check and, and uh, let's just call it a day, go ahead and let your secretary give informed consent. 
because again, there are legislation on actually who can give informed consent. So typically it's the person must be involved in the procedure first and foremost, but secondly, you have to either be a nurse practitioner, PA or a physician. And so uh, again, the secretary can witness the signature. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is that that little witness line there is just basically witnessing that the person signed. And so I love it when physicians say, I can delegate. You brought this really good point up. Delegation. Delegation has, you have to be very cautious with delegation and who you're delegating to. Board of Nursing specifically is very clear on who you can delegate to. Um, and remember, uh, this new thing with independent practice, now we have nurse practitioners and physician assistants calling themselves medical directors. So be very cautious about being a medical director and who you're allowing to actually do procedures underneath your license. Let's be clear. They're under your license because you are overseeing these unlicensed professionals. So if you think as a physician that it's okay to allow your medical assistant to suture and close wounds, well, you're wrong. You do not have authority just to tell any single person. I I knew a dermatologist that would hire uh, waitresses from Applebee's and bring them into their office and, and teach them all kinds of crazy stuff. And I would just, you know, they wanted to hire these pretty young things to be in their office. And I said to them, you're allowing them to suture? Yeah, I can do whatever I want. I can, no, you cannot. So go ahead and keep doing these kind of really bad medical decisions and just make sure you have that hefty checkbook to start signing off on your settlement cases because that's exactly what's going to happen if when you continue to train unlicensed people to do skills that they are not licensed to do. So you and I practice in jurisdictions where I think that's generally uh, the case uh, as to what how delegation is limited. But there are – I have to say there are some states where the uh, statutes are so unclear that it's theoretical that a physician – and some of them actually do it – can allow a person off the street to be directed to do something. And one could imagine, especially in a rural area, that uh, a physician who's, let's say, delivering a baby might require the assistance of a non-medically trained person uh, because of an emergency or whatever to do something which involves a, a medical task, surgical task perhaps. And so there are exceptions to the rule. And again, it can vary tremendously from state to state. Um, it's a little bit uncomfortable for me uh, to to hear about some states where, apart from emergency situations where this is going on, but it, it does occur. And I think it brings up another topic. I mean, why are physician assistants, nurse practitioners uh, being used so much? I mean, in the last two decades, the use of nurse practitioners and PAs, especially in semi-autonomous or autonomous roles, has increased tremendously because it's allowed physicians especially to expand their practices and go to 
cover multiple offices. But with that goes questions about billing. So maybe you could talk about billing issues, uh, a physician assistant nurse practitioner versus a physician. And I know you and I have talked a little bit about TTAM issues. And I, I think it's important that people understand uh, the risks involved with that. Great, great topic. I'm going to probably take a step back. And before we go into that is the documentation um, prior to talking about billing. There seems to be, again, this misconception with physicians that they think that being on premise and reviewing notes allows them to basically bill out under their number. And so this is not correct. You saying writing on every single note I've reviewed and agree with the treatment plan does not allow you to write, uh, to bill out incident two. And we'll get into what incident two is in a minute. So electronic charting. Electronic charting can be a blessing and it can be a curse. And so going back to documentation, it used to be, Paul, they said if it wasn't documented, um, it wasn't done. Well, electronic charting has gotten to a point where the medical assistant is doing the charting, the the provider who is tired at the end of the day, they have to look over and review the notes. So they're going through them really quickly. And, and so they have these automatic dictation that's going on that says, I've done this and I've done that. And I've went over the ABCDs and, and of melanoma. And, and so just because you click that button and say that you have done these things. And then the patient's like, well, wait a minute. They never went over that with me. And so time and time again, I have reviewed some cases where it becomes a, he said, she said, Hey, they just clicked this button and there really wasn't a thought basic skincare. And so again, be this cookie cutter documentation you need to be cautious. You need to really review those notes. I personally have my patients on critical issues. I actually give handwritten education and the patient signs that they receive this education, especially when it comes to, you know, you've had this full body exam and if anything changes, as we all know, melanoma or skin cancers, uh, non-melanoma skin cancers can really ramp up within four to five weeks. And then the patient's saying, oh, it was there prior. What well, You missed it on my exam. Whatever the case may be, I've had a couple of cases that this has happened. So we need to go back to patient-centered care. And what does that mean? My patients are told that you are responsible for your care. I, It's a patient-provider relationship. But ultimately, it's your responsibility to make sure you didn't get your medications. You need to call us. You, you have something that changed in between your visits. You need to call us. You need to let us know if anything has happened with side effects. How many times have you had a patient, Paul, that you find out later that they were having side effects of the medication and the patient never called you? And that can be... Um, again, used against you, you must write back in, again, back in the day, we used to, and I still write this 
today. If you get a temperature over 101, if you develop、uh, fever, chills, if you ha- are having any change in your situation, you need to go to the emergency room, urgent care if it's after hours, if it's a true emergency.、Um, have you seen cases like this where in, in malpractice that electronic charting has actually been used against the provider? So I can't say that. that、uh... In my cases、uh, that I've reviewed, that there's been an issue with electronic medical records. I haven't had them,、um, but I certainly can see where it's going to happen, and I certainly can see where it already has happened.、Uh, I would also say that when you're,、uh, that when a patient gets their EOB, their explanation of benefits, And they see、uh, that they've been charged, or Medicare particularly has been charged for something. And the patient says, "Well, I never had that done." Now you run a different risk, which is the risk of the patient complaining to Medicare or Medicaid or whomever, and brings up that whole issue which you and I talked about recently about whistleblowers.、Uh, sometimes it can be somebody in your own office. So if you're not billing correctly. If you're not billing correctly with physician assistants, nurse practitioners, you run some sub- substantial risks、uh, in terms of fraud, which which I know that、uh, you've reviewed cases like that.、Um, but from my perspective, I can see where electronic medical records is a big problem.、Um, I personally have not had a case where it was the electronic medical record. There's usually a lot more to it than that. That's at issue. Yes. So g- going back to when we talk about the informed consent, electronic charting, and having the patient sign and and that sort of documentation, we really need to be careful that you standardize the way that you approach your informed consent, who's giving the informed consent, and do it the same way each and every time. And so even though the patient signs. The paper really quick. You are responsible for basically going over it, giving them, giving them the reason why you're doing the procedure, risks and benefits of the procedure,、uh, and making sure that any alternative、uh, treatments that are out there are given to the patient. Even and- even alternative treatments with another physician. You know, there may be another specialty that the physician.、Um- Cannot handle themselves where they need. They should have referred the patient out to、uh, another type of for another type of treatment. Let's say the physician doesn't do radiation therapy in dermatology. You know, the patient needs to be aware of the opportunity to have radiation therapy as opposed to、uh, typical surgery, for instance.、Uh, the other thing about electronic medical records that I've noticed is that、uh, they don't really allow you to edit them very easily. To add in customized uh, uh, thoughts, so because you're seeing a lot of the charts at the end of the day, you're you're disinclined to have to go through all the editing that would need to be done,、uh, and the language that needs to be changed within an electronic medical record. It can be really frustrating to try to be more specific. You know, you want to call、uh, the area one location, but the electronic medical record has already decided it's a, a completely A different location than what you're actually trying to say, you know. It's decided on an anatomical、uh, nomenclature that 
is not as specific as you want it to be. Whereas in, in the old days, again, I'm an old physician, I used to draw in the places where the lesions were. I could actually put the measurements from one point to another and triangulate them so they would be easy to find the next time and take photographs as well. Sometimes the electronic medical record doesn't allow you to do that. And you may recall that with paper uh, records, you could easily go back through the chart especially in a, in a single specialty, you could easily go back through the chart and see what you've been treating, whereas with an electronic medical record, you may have difficulty really looking at what you did you know, two months ago or three months ago or a year ago. Uh, it's just not all there in the way that you'd like to see it. I, I agree. I can't agree even more uh, any more than that. It's just we come from, remember the days of Polaroid cameras, Paul? We used to take Polaroids of patients, and and those were the days, I say. Now we have the iPads, which I use. And so I actually do all my triangulation on the iPad and print out on paper and put it in the chart because I want to do my measurements. But you're 1,000% right. The medical record calls it one thing, and on the electronic record, and then on your pathology, you're actually calling scalps lesions are notorious for this. Scalp lesions, you have the, set, the pathology says vertex. The other one says parietal. And now are you dealing with two separate lesions? Is it the same lesion? What is it? That's why photography should be paramount. And when you are documenting your biopsies, you can't take enough photographs. But um, I, I have really looked at numerous cases where uh, the electronic record and locations have been skewed because, again, are we looking at when we're going back at and we're looking at our charts at eight o'clock at night? Are we going back and saying, hey, did we la label it this? Was it really that? No, most people are just clicking and saying, uh, you know, putting through their putting through their note. This looks pretty good. I'm going to send my note off. And so, I think leaving really the best topic uh, for the end of this discussion, and we will have many, many other episodes that will go into deeper and deeper into things as far as things like documentation. But I really think this most important topic of what we talked about, incident two, and the actual uh, the advanced pride, uh, practice provider's responsibility for knowing what how you are being billed out. You cannot plead ignorance in your defense, saying that well, it was the clinical practice people who sent out my billing. No. Every single provider must apply for their own Medicaid and Medicare number. And we need to be responsible that when we are seeing those patients, that if we are not billing out under incident two, that it's going under our number. And so what is incident two? Incident two is very clear. The physician must be direct supervision on the premise, and then they must see the patient, do the physical exam, come up with a treatment plan for whatever diagnosis. So if it's acne, psoriasis, 
After that visit, then the nurse practitioner or PA can see that patient for those specific diagnoses that were addressed with that physician. If the patient comes in with a new diagnosis, then they must be billed out under the advanced provider, uh, their number, not the physician, or just tell the patient, I will see you for the acne or psoriasis. You'll have to see Dr. So-and-so for that prior to me seeing you. If you want to bill out incident two, I, you know, keep, you might as well just, again, write, bring out your checkbook. If you're in a medical malpractice situation and you are billing under your number and you just say, I reviewed notes, that can be a problem. And again, everything comes to light when you're in, in litigation. You can't hide. There's no hiding. And so everything billing will be brought out. And so if you do go to jury trial, what do you think the jury is going to say that you're billing out under the doctor's number and the doctor never physically saw that patient? Again, this is a popularity contest. When I go and I try to coach people, the jury has to like you. It, you can be the most smartest person in the room, but if the jury's not going to like you, or if things are brought up in that, in that deposition or in that courtroom that they're going to say, Hey, that doesn't seem right. Why did they do that? That doesn't seem that the patient, the physician never saw the patient yet. They're billing out under their number. How do you think that's going to influence their decision? So again, it's not worth it. And whistleblowers do get a percentage of, so as a whistleblower, you, it's federal government, you make the complaint, you don't even have to be involved in the actual case. I know physicians who have purposely gone after other physicians, just either A, out of revenge for some weird reason, or they want to collect the whistleblower fee, which can be up to 20%. Now, if you have advanced providers that are making on the average of anywhere to six to 800,000 and you're billing out under that number for 10 years, how, how much do you think we're talking about in, in the upwards of $20 million? So that's not bad money, right, Paul? Uh, you know, for a day's work, go ahead and do a whistleblower act and you're getting like $2 million for, uh, you know, sending out or, you know, two, four million dollars for blowing a whistle on, on a colleague because you have evidence that they're uh, fraudulently billing out under the number. I think, unfortunately, uh, that's the situation. And um, all the uh, camaraderie uh, that comes with going to medical school with someone goes out the window when it turns out to be related to, uh, Questions about monetary uh, issues. Money does, about- strange, money does strange <laughs> things to people. Yes, yes, yeah. We know we know um, what that does, right? And so, well, we know about five cases in Florida alone that that's happened. So yeah, we've seen some pretty pretty wild cases in Florida. Um, but I think maybe uh, maybe this is a good time for us to uh, 
plan on another session sometime. I was just sitting here listening. So I want to thank you guys so much for that valuable insight. I mean, just sitting here listening, I know you guys joking about how long you've been in practice, but plethora, right, of information. You guys could go on and on, it seems Well, I like. was worried about the fact that with all the uh, <laughs> conversation that Deborah and I apparently have, that my wife would be jealous. I don't know. <laughs> well, 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 she's I, my she's my closest one of my closest friends. So she she told me she told me a long time ago I could have you. It doesn't matter. Yeah, there are okay. days, she, there does, there are days she definitely will get rid of me. For there sure. you go. <laughs> well, I know I know that our listeners, I am sure, got some great takeaways. But I was wondering if either of you wanted to offer up what you think is one or more of the most important takeaways to leave, or any other parting words of wisdom to leave our listeners with? Like if you remember one thing from this podcast, what would it possibly be? You know, I think from my perspective, it's uh, for the physician to pay attention to the um, state laws that affect his or her practice in regards to the use of paraprofessionals and uh, what's expected of the physician in terms of having a some type of collaborative agreement with the uh, paraprofessional. Sounds like words to live by. Thank you guys so much again. And thank you listeners for joining us on Core Matters in Healthcare. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we invite you to join us again for upcoming episodes from this series, Lessons from Litigation, on also other episodes that we're offering, which offer perspectives on what's happening in healthcare and how it impacts providers. So remember, please follow Core Med Source. Please like us anytime you see us on social media. And if you haven't yet, please visit us on coremedsource.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Core Matters in Healthcare, which is brought to you by Core Med Source, who are committed to enhancing healthcare by offering superior online specialty training for medical providers, focusing on quality and accessibility to prepare more medical professionals for specialist roles. Level up with Core Med Source, it's your next step. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support us, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with Core Matters in healthcare, please follow Core Med Source on social media. We'd love to see you there.